0: Welcome everybody to the Global Data Pod. I'm your host, Nora Santivani, and joining me today is Gabriel Lozano, Chief Economist for Mexico. Welcome, Gabriel, how are you doing?
1: I'm fine, thank you very much, Nora, for this very challenging and interesting topic to discuss today.
0: Yes, thanks for coming on. So in today's research wrap, uh, we're going to discuss uh, Mexico. And, you know, I'm sure we could fill a whole hour just talking about Mexican inflation (laughs) and monetary policy, but we're going to shelve that for another episode. So I hope our listeners will forgive me for not getting Gabriel to talk about that today we will bring him back for another episode on that later on but today we want to talk about um, an equally fascinating topic I think and you've just written an excellent research piece on it uh, the terms friend shoring near shoring I mean these are terms that have cropped up in in recent years uh, you know we've seen a reshuffling of investment and trade primarily away from China to other, other locations. Um, and it's often been said that Mexico, you know, along with some other countries in ASEAN and India could be beneficiaries of this so-called phenomenon. So maybe we could start off by you giving us your definition of what you mean by uh, near-shoring or friend-shoring, uh, You shoring know, how are the two different, and, and maybe why Mexico is so well positioned to, to benefit from this, this phenomenon.
1: Absolutely. No, thank you again for this uh, very interesting topic discussion. And I think that in the end, nearshoring could be spelled USMCA or was spelled NAFTA, no, in the sense that Mexico has been so close in the region to the US and Canada in terms of uh, zero tariffs, a strong manufacturing channel, the geopolitical uh, location, and the advantages of being so close historically has given mexico the lead in terms of being the natural uh, country to take advantages and to to benefit from all these issues related to how mexico is going to capture some of the lost opportunities in other regions of the world given uh, geopolitical tensions every, uh, in, in asia what's been going on in europe as well is definitely opening that window of opportunity at the same time if we think that mexico within Latin America is the most important country in terms of the um, concentration of manufacturing exports as compared to the rest of Latin, which is more concentrated on commodity exports. I think that gives Mexico the lead. So it's been more of a, a positive feedback loop for Mexico. This uh, locational advantages, the logistical advantage, transportation-wise as well has been positive. And, and then from the perspective of how the northern part of Mexico has become a very important corridor in which we have a lot of manufacturing centers in in, in, in the on the West Coast, on the East Coast, that, that has been a, a major advantage for the country. And you're right, I mean, we don't even know necessarily what's the only determining shoring. It's been a, a lot about the French shoring, precisely mm-hmm. because at some point we've been thinking about the idea of maybe it's not only about cost optimization, it's Mm -hmm. also thinking Mm -hmm. about certainty. And that has been essential in this relocation of projects.
0: yeah, no, absolutely. I was going to just say, like, I remember in the past before I suppose the US-China trade war started, you know, investment decis- decisions used to be primarily dictated by labor costs, right? So that that was really the main thing uh, investors were thinking about. Then we had this turn towards protectionism, if I can use that term. Mm-hmm. And then really, it was more about pursuit of, you know, to some extent, national security, the need to be self-sufficient in certain sectors, uh, maybe political. Alliances, but clearly Mexico has many of these things going for it. It's got the cost, it's got the location, it's got the political alignment. So all things seem to be aligned no. from from the looks of it.
1: No, absolutely, yeah.
0: Okay, so maybe we could we could then uh, talk a little bit about what we're actually seeing on the ground, right, in terms of the the, the trade um, with the U.S. Right, if we think about the evolution of of Mexico's uh, trade trade share with the U.S., especially relative to China. What, what have we seen over time in terms of the evolution of those trade shares? Is mm-hmm. is it actually reality that this relocation is happening or is, it, or is it more myth?
1: No, it was very interesting because at the beginning I mentioned the importance of NAFTA back in 1994, how Mexico became closer to the to the U.S. and, and Canada. But then uh, the entrance of China to the World Trade Organization early this century changed um, basically, the trend of Mexico's uh, participation in the uh, share of U.S. imports, it started to stabilize at a percentage that was concerning, given Mexico's closeness to the U.S., and at the same time, of course, Ch- China's entrance to the WTO gave a lot of advantages globally from the issues related to uh, disinflation processes and the way in which it Obviously, competition increases, but in the end, Mexico really suffered badly, particularly on textiles and some manufacturing, also in other regions of the country, and Mexico's concentration was basically on the auto sector. And that continued to be the case. And and now is also showing that that will continue to be the case, probably. But then, of course, with the start of the U.S.-China trade war uh, a few years back, that changed uh, dramatically the expectations for a number of countries to participate in the pie uh, in which uh, they send exports to the U.S. And that has been given mexico the lead uh, mostly on the sectors that i've mentioned but the, the now the main cha- cha- challenge is how mexico is going to cash in is going to be the main beneficiary if we are going to continue thinking that mexico's uh, advantages given closeness to the us is going to be the main the the, the main uh, uh, channel to to think about uh, 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 the manufacturing and, and, and investment overall
0: yeah okay can, can we put some numbers on that is that okay so if we think about mexico's sure. share of us imports like where did we start? Let's let's take the past two decades, right? How, what was the lowest point we reached and then where has it kind of rebounded? I know that Mexico's yeah. uh, share has increased recently, but you know, how much higher could this share go? Where is it now in terms of overall US imports? Is Mexico in the lead? Has it yeah. overtaken China or what are the numbers?
1: That's a really good point, Nora. I think that uh we need to, to, to confirm this structural change in terms of the participation of U.S. imports. Uh, Mexico reached a low point of around uh, 5%, uh, well, back at the start of NAFTA, at the, the, the end of, of, of last century, gradually increasing towards 10 to 12% at the beginning of this century, then uh, going slightly lower in the high single digits and then gradually grinding higher as the trade war started with China, between U.S. and China. Mexico has managed to reach the 15% uh, uh, of uh, total uh, imports uh, and that is expected to be higher. Probably, we think that there's a space of reaching around 20% stabilizing around mm-hmm. those levels and being mostly even with uh, Canada, I mean, pretty much in the context of what we mentioned about the regional trade agreement and we think that this... Uh, Country share of US imports across the world will continue to, to split across regions. We've seen a lot of participation of other countries, and maybe this is not necessarily the, 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 the purpose of this uh, discussion, but in the end, it's very relevant because there's been, or mm-hmm. well, there's going to be a lot of competition uh, across uh, the region. We've heard some governments in some other areas in Latin America raising their hands and saying, listen, we ha- we're going to give fiscal incentives so you can come to El Salvador, you can come to Costa Rica, Dominican Republic are also raising their hands. So I think that is very relevant in the context of Mexico sending the signals that they are not necessarily as open, as friendly on some sectors like energy particularly, and some of the lags related to infrastructure that might just keep the percentage of U.S. imports relatively low for a while. But definitely there's space to reach around 20 percent, and we think that uh, as conditions are right now uh, evolving, we think that, that Mexico will reach those levels at some point.
0: All right. Okay. That's all very encouraging. So um, obviously, you know, a lot has been going on in the past couple of years with the, the post-pandemic uh, rebound and normalization. And it's kind of difficult to separate some of the kind of more cyclical factors from the structural mm-hmm. ones, right? We know that the sort of deglobalization wave started clearly before the pandemic. But then post-pandemic, we've seen a normalization in trade and investment flows. Uh, We've had um, the impact of the pandemic on supply chains, the pent-up import demand. Um, Clearly, more recently, we've seen um, a recovery in global trade flows as Mm -hmm. that pent-up demand was released, and then the recent supply chain normalization. So there's a lot going on, both in terms of the cycle and the more structural factors. I mean, to what extent are you viewing Mexico's current rebound in terms of investment and so on, cyclical versus structural? I mean, how are you thinking about this and what are the sort of investment and FDI numbers we should be thinking about here, maybe relative to pre-pandemic levels or relative to what you were thinking before?
1: We are at the very, a very important point right now, Nora, in terms of what are the challenges and whether we are really going to uh, buck the trend and change structurally towards a more relevant level of both domestic investment and foreign investment, given that what we've seen so far is mostly the pent-up demand recovery, The first stage of the post-pandemic in 2021, 2022, was more about consumption recovery. Then, with more certainty related to we have a USMCA, there's more certainty about the transition from one regime to the other from a political perspective, and the fact that we also have more clarity about the post-pandemic recovery, we've seen that investment is catching up. It's catching up to levels consistent with the pre-pandemic. It's not something that suggests it's a structural change that would bring Mexico into another level of investment dynamics. Uh, the levels of uh, domestic investment thinking from a fixed income uh, recovery are very similar as a percentage of GDP to pre-pandemic, which is close to 20%, which we still see a, a, as a low level compared to what we expected, back in, the, uh, in t- 2010, 2012, when there was a number of structural reforms proposed by the previous administrations aimed at further uh, an increment in productivity and competitiveness. And back at that time, we saw that the investment as a percentage of GDP was expected to reach levels closer to 23 to 25%. So definitely there's still uh, some pending task on investment recovery. If we think from the FDI perspective, the good news is that we are stabilizing between 30 and 35 billion back in at the start of this uh, administration in 2018 2019 we expected fdi to fall towards 20 between 20 and 25 billion so clearly there is a, a, a more sustained path of investment that suggests that the damage on investment, given some erratic policies and some concerns related to global and domestic uh, uh, events, uh, is not really uh, exerting too much pressure on damaging FDI as much as originally expected. So we are more comfortable with the FDI um, catching up, remaining between 30 and 35 billion. But still, recently, and as recently as last uh, quarter, we're seeing that new, Im- new FDI investments are falling and are starting to, 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 to moderate which is why we raised the question, is this a structural change, or was this only part of a cyclical recovery in the Mm -hmm, mm post-pandemic?
0: Okay, so you mentioned that 30, 35 billion, what is that, like two two, two and a half percent of GDP, something like that? Exactly.
1: exactly. Um,
0: Yeah, but you also say in your note that back in 2012, you were thinking more of an annual FDI number of close to 45 billion, so clearly relative to that, maybe things haven't panned out quite as positively, but still not a bad result uh, in, in, in the grand exactly. scheme of things. Um, and I mean, all of this, of course, has implications for potential growth as well, right, in terms of FDI. And, um, you know, at one point, I remember for Mexico, we were talking about like almost 4% potential growth, like relative to that, where where are we now, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> no, absolutely. Um,
1: no, and to that point, i sorry to interrupt. I think that yeah. very relevant issue is all this discussion about potential growth. Initially, with these reforms that I mentioned back in 2010 to 2012, it was a four percent expectation uh, for 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 potential growth. With manufacturing growing very strong, but very much coupled with construction, mining, all uh, production is still pretty much a very important helping hand on the side of industrial production. But no, on the other hand, services economy was also recovering very strongly. Nowadays. At best, we have been discussing potential output closer to 2%. But in the post-pandemic scarring and conditions on the small and medium enterprises, the fact that productivity continues to be very low suggests that potential growth in Mexico is below 2%. And, and to that point, that's why we think that there's so much overheating right now in the economy, given this recovery in investment and the recovery and consumption that I also mentioned earlier.
0: I'm um, Yeah, I'm really gra- glad you... Brought up uh, productivity because it was where, where I was going to go with mm. my next question. Um, so, we've first of all, we've talked about the role of labor costs, right, in terms of driving relocation from um, China yes. to, to Mexico, because China manufacturing labor costs in like US dollar terms in China seem to have overtaken Mexico since about 2015, if I read this correctly correct. from your chart. Yes. Um, now, I mean, that's one thing, but um, the, the other aspect we need to think about is productivity per hour's work. So you could easily have a situation where you have a lower labor cost, but you also have a lower productivity level. So in terms of your unit labor cost, right, like how much you're producing, how much it costs to produce a unit of, of output, that might not mm-hmm. be quite as favorable. I remember back in um, uh, 2004 when um, the Central Eastern European economies were joining the EU and you had these huge amounts of FDI flowing into the region and um, you know at the time labor costs uh, were something like 50 percent of German levels but once you uh, adjusted for much lower Adjust, productivity yeah. you were actually in a situation where your unit labor cost wasn't quite so attractive. So I kind of wonder about that aspect for Mexico because here you're showing that relative to the OECD average there's a pretty big gap right in terms of Mexican productivity being way lower. I mean to what extent is that an obstacle, obstacle for Mexico getting a larger piece of the, the relocation pie here.
1: No, in the in the end, I mean one of the key conclusions from this discussion and this analysis is that productivity is expected to remain quite low in the forthcoming future. Uh, there was a, a big break back in 2014. Uh, and, and that, in my view, is one of the key aspects to analyze in the country because it's not only related to the short-term dynamics and issues related to domestic and external shocks, but it's more of a structural drag that it continues to pose a major risk to Mexico becoming a major, major uh, technological hub and that uh, deliver more positive news in the long term. Um, back in 2014, that's when we saw the break between energy production in the country, uh, less uh, competition, and there was uh, less uh, encouraging news and potential uh, uh, po- positive uh, dynamics in terms of uh, structural reforms so uh, given that we continue to be stalled on this issue about productivity we think that that's going to be the main challenge because when we think about uh, research and development investment and other countries uh, competitors both in Asia and Latin America trying to gain traction or give more incentives to investment uh, in the in, in in the in the current uh, uh, stance of things we think that Mexico will uh, uh Struggle to bring uh, the, the economy and overall manufacturing and investment uh, back on track with the OECD average. And, and that's, that's something that is going to take time. It's very difficult to revert this trend and probably will have to wait until the 2035, 2040 to be more, cons- more, more co- with a more compelling story about the recovery in, in productivity.
0: Okay, and, and then what are the some of the more maybe political obstacles to Mexico capitalizing on its advantageous mm. p- position? You talked a little bit about tensions with trading partners, reforms that yeah. are scaring investors off. Do you want to just give us some high-level view on what's going on there?
1: Absolutely. If you ask a local investor about, about the main challenge, they always underscore energy. Energy, uh, water supply, maybe the second most important theme, and those issues have been quite relevant recently. Mostly, given that the current administration has been sending signals about the reverse, the re- reversal uh, or reversal of some of the policy actions that were announced back in 2012, back in 2014, about more private sector participation, more competition, and now that the current administration is pushing in favor of um, the national uh, entities, the national companies to have a more broader participation in in generation and and, and distribution of electricity. That's uh, bringing back the big question about what is going to happen in the medium term, given the strong demand for real estate um, uh, park park industries in the north part of the country that have been exerting pressure on prices, by the way, uh, and issues related as well to how fast can we really develop infrastructure to be sure that we can uh, support the big uh, intentions or the plans that have been announced to, to increase uh, manufacturing production? So definitely definitely, it's on energy. Uh, the, 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 there's even a pending uh, panel discussion between uh, US and Canada in which they might uh, exert pressure on Mexico to revert some of the uh, uh, um, more open policies that I mentioned on electricity. At the same time, there's been some other policies in terms of uh, um, uh, exports of grain. Main exports of, of, of meat and poultry to the US that might be uh, challenging in this context of free trade. No, so definitely that's that's the main challenge. Then on the other hand, there's been some um, actions from the government in which they are trying to send a message that uh, they uh, could. Um, revert some of the uh, concessions that may, they've made in the past. The most famous was back in 2018, with the cancellation of the project of a new airport that was expected to be a big logistical hub. And that cancellation in the end was one of the reasons why uh, Mexico had a recession before the pandemic in 2019, with investing investment collapsing very significantly in 2019. So I think that kind of signals is relevant in, in the context of, of this discussion.
0: Mm. And then when I look at your list of top announcements of foreign investment, they still look like they're largely auto-driven investments. I mean, yes. Mexico is, 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 is clearly known as an auto-driven um, economy. I was just wondering whether you see scope for di- diversifying away from this, maybe moving up the value-added chain into some more exactly. sophisticated technologies. Um, what are your thoughts on that?
1: No, I think that, 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 that that's exactly one of the, of the points that, that I've been raising. And, and it's yeah. that Mexico continues to be very strong on the auto sector, continues to be strong on some other electronics appliances. Uh, I will not give a list of the full appliances in which Mexico is, is top. T- three producers, but in the end, it's, it's the auto sector, the auto parts. Mm. Uh, and, and the Tesla announcement, of course, is big and it's important in this context. It will give a lot of value added on the sector, and because we are experts on, on, on that area. But still, if we think about much more value added, that's the pending task in Mexico. We think mm. that the lack of investment in research and development uh, will keep Mexico on the sidelines, and, and that even will keep Latin. Lots time on the sidelines, given that most of the investment on in that area has been in, in Asia, um, and probably that that will be the main pending task as well when we think we think about diversification of manufacturing in the in the country.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right, maybe just a final question from my side is, uh, you know, I'm looking at all these investments, and I'm wondering whether there's mm. sufficient um, labor. <laughs> surplus labor within within Mexico, right? Because right now we talk a lot about scarcity of labor and how tight labor markets are generating wage inflation and inflation, and without going into monetary policy or inflation discussion, <laughs> I'm just wondering whether there's enough yeah. labor really to deal with all these additional investments that are, are coming but into Mexico.
1: I'm glad you you raised that point, Nora, because indeed we've seen a major issue on, on wages. And, and if I had to, to think about the major challenges for firms in the country. First, it was clearly electricity, as I said, but the second issue uh, after um, um, supply of of, of energy is related to wages. We've seen that there is a struggle to um, hire very well-prepared people in the manufacturing sector in the country. We've heard that even Mexico is importing labor from the U.S., and it's becoming like a very interesting challenge and in, mm-hmm. a very interesting time in terms of this rotation from migration uh, to, to Mexico. And and in the end, I mean, we've seen that so far this year, the average wages in Mexico are almost 10% in nominal terms, annual increment, which is something that, by the way, as you mentioned, monetary policy is, is one of the key <laughs> challenges that the Central Bank has been mentioning. Yeah. But uh, in the end, the, the concern, from the perspective of uh, manufacturing and this rotation towards a more French-sharing discussion, is that Mexico is going to close the gap with China faster than expected, in in my view.
0: Okay, good. uh, It's good that we managed to sneak in a little bit of comment on on monetary policy. (laughs) Um, Okay, I mean, uh, right. So, I mean, in in summary, um, Mexico looks like it has um, managed to level the field in terms of exports to the US as compared to China. Uh, some of this is of course due to external factors, exogenous shocks, um, wage differentials between Mexico and China. There's a bit of sort of near shoring element, but it, it doesn't sound like we're overly bullish on, on the sort of more medium long-term case where you know, you're know you mentioning domestic factors that are maybe delaying a more compelling case for, or for French shoring, right? Some institutional yes. hurdles yeah. and some other constraints. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I mean, yeah.
1: we're cautiously optimistic in terms of trying to, to understand what has been going on, given all this discussion of structural versus cyclical. Uh, There are challenges from domestic perspective, uh, thinking about these institutional changes, the political uh, challenges, thinking about 2024, both elections in Mexico and the US. Um, And and finally, I mean, of course, thinking about uh, spending on education, there's been a lot of discussion as to whether the government has been very much austere, but it has not been the case. It's mostly that it has been uh, allocating uh, resources in a way that has been different to the past. It's not like the most efficient allocation of resources. And that is that is challenging in, in this context. I, I think that to some extent, if we want also to adopt a, a reasonably frustrating approach or bearish on, on what could have been a major opportunity is that there, are, there is a big opportunity cost in here. Uh, we are not growing uh, more than 2% in terms of the potential growth right now. Investment could have been 45 billion from the FDI perspective. There is a lot of this um, share of US imports that is going to Eastern uh, Asia, uh, to, to, to Southern Asia. We've seen also some of that going to Europe, to Africa and to, and to Latin America. So definitely Mexico is not grabbing the most of the opportunity here.
0: Okay, Gabriel, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining no, me. You, We're going to have to leave it there. And I promise to everyone I will bring Gabriel back for a discussion on monetary policy <laughs> soon. Thank you to our, our uh, listeners and we hope to continue the conversation on the next Global Data Pod. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan research reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2023 JP Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved. This episode was recorded on June 21, 2023.